episode 47 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about everything related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. How are you today, Dermot? Eh, doing okay, I guess. You ready to talk about James Joyce? Always. All right. Well, let's jump right in then. Dermot has been working on some new artwork. The first artwork that he's done, and if you're new to the podcast, Dermot is the artist for our blog. He does an illustration for every podcast episode and blog post. And we have a new blog post up on the blog called Ulysses and the Odyssey, colon, the Lotus Eaters. What do you remember about this post, Dermot? That uh, we, we had a quick discussion on what the art should be. And I think we settled on something psychedelic. Yeah, but what's the post about? Oh, uh, the Lotus Eaters, obviously. They are the people who eat lotuses. Mm-hmm. They're druggies. All right, we're trying. We're trying to sell this to, to our audience. <laughs> well, from obviously we have Homer's uh, lotus eaters, which apparently aren't as big in the book as they are in the public mind. They seem to have had a outsized impact. Yep, I and, would agree with that. And uh, of course, in Ulysses, it's a bunch of fellas stuffing their faces with greasy bacon, I think, and various other awful foods. Uh, that that is a Lestragonians was a, oh. a chapter about cannibals. Oh. Well, if you want to find out what we have to say about that, you should check out the blog post. And Dermot, as I mentioned, did art for that. Can you describe your picture? Yeah, I went 60s Psychedelia, Yellow Submarine, uh, the Beatles movie. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Leopold Bloom is basically, the, I guess, the fifth Beatle. And <laughs> As he was known. <laughs> yeah. I, I used a lot of visual reference from the movie. So if it looks familiar, it's for a very good reason. Mm-hmm. And I, I worry that people might think that we're pandering to baby boomers because we've done a Beatles parody and a Charlton Heston parody. Mm. But these are all references from my own childhood. Yeah. Same the movies that my baby boomer parents yeah. showed me as a kid. It's really fun artwork. If you'd like to see it, check out our site at bloomsandbarnacles.com. You can see that. And other artwork, including the artwork Dermot did for this podcast episode. So tell us a little bit about that artwork. Oh, this is Tatters the Dog Surfing the Ninth Wave, mm-hmm. which is a, sort of a, a Hokusai-type Celtic version of the Hokusai wave with the Martella Tower in the, cryptically in the background. And I thought those were clouds, but now I see that that is the Martella <laughs> Tower. It's like cryptic. You can see there's like a Daedalus on the beach there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, lo- I love the dog. It's like Poochie the dog from The Simpsons. He has big Poochie energy for yes, sure. Yes, yes. What does it mean, surf in the ninth wave? Uh, as you just told me from the the book, the in Celtic mythology, the number nine was considered like a liminal boundary between this world and the mm-hmm. other world, and it was like a magical place. And I think too, the the corpses were thought to wash back up on the ninth day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nine is kind of a, a holy number in many traditions because three is sacred, and so nine is three times three. Mm-hmm. And we will talk about some of this stuff in today's episode. So, once again, if you want to check out Dermot's always interesting, always fun artwork, please go to our site, bloomsandbarnacles.com, and you can see the show notes for this episode, as well as Dermot's artwork. We have a couple shout-outs this week. These are folks who, in this case, have both donated to Blooms and Barnacles. It takes a lot of work to put together these podcast episodes, as well as the blog, and to make various art creations like Dermot does. So we really do appreciate people who are able to donate. And you, if you are interested in donating, there's 
a PayPal button in the upper right hand corner of our website. So feel free to click on that. Dermot, can you read our shout outs this week? Sure. Uh, we'd like to thank Ellen Murphy and Trevor McHugh, who both have donated very kindly to the blog. Mm -hmm. And Trevor McHugh left us a little message. He writes, thank you for the great job on Bloomsday 2020. Best wishes, Professor McHugh. Winky emo emoticon. <laughs> thank you very much, Ellen and Trevor. We really do appreciate it. And once again, if you are able, please consider donating at bloomsandbarnacles.com. And without further ado, let's talk about this passage. This week's passage is, again, from Parodius. We're on pages 46 and 47 in my personal edition, which is the 1990 Vintage International Edition. Dermot, go ahead and read that for us. A woman and a man. I see her skirties, pinned up, I bet. Their dog ambled about a bank of dwindling sand, trotting, sniffing on all sides. Looking for something lost in a past life, suddenly he made off like a bounding hare, ears flung back, chasing the shadow of a low-skimming gull. The man shrieked, whistled, struck his limp ears. He turned, bounded back, came nearer, trotted on twinkling shanks. On a field tenny, a book, trippant, proper, unattired. At the lace fringe of the tide, he halted with stiff forehoofs, seaward pointed ears. His snout tilted, barked at the wave noise, herds of sea morse. They serpented towards his feet, curling, unfurling many crests, every ninth breaking, plashing from far, from further out, waves and waves. Cockle pickers. They waded a little way in the water and, stooping, soused their bags and, lifting them again, waded out. The dog yelped, running to them, reared up and pawed them, dropping on all fours, again reared up at them with mute, bearish fawning. Unheeded, he kept by them as they came towards the drier sand, a rag of wolf's tongue, red panting from his jaws. His speckled body ambled ahead of them and then loped off at a calf's gallop. The carcass lay on his path. He stopped sniffed, stalked round it, brother, nosing closer, went round it, sniffing rapidly like a dog all over the dead dog's bedraggled fell. Dog scold, dog sniff, eyes on the ground, moves to one great goal. Ah, poor dog's body. Here lies poor dog's body's body. Tatters! Out of that, you mongrel! The cry brought him skulking back to his master, and a blunt bootless kick sent him unscathed across a spit of sand, crouched in flight. He slunk back in a curve. Doesn't see me. Along by the edge of the mole, he lolloped, dawdled, smelt a rock, and from under a cocked hind leg, pissed against it. He trotted forward, and, lifting again his hind leg, pissed quick short at an unsmelt rock. The simple pleasures of the poor. His hind paws then scattered the sand, then his forepaws dabbled and delved. Something he buried there, his grandmother. He rooted in the sand, dabbling, delving, and stopped to listen to the air, scraped up the sand again with the fury of his claws, soon ceasing. A pard, a panther, god and spouse breach, vulturing the dead. Thanks, Dermot. So, what do you think is going on here? Uh, well, the obvious action's pretty clear, I think. It's, uh, you know, he's Stephen still on the, the strand, mm -hmm. and he sees a couple of people that are cockle-picking. Mm -hmm. And a quick side note, I remember I was taking the train, which goes by Sandy Mount Strand uh, many years ago in the late 80s, and some kid got on and he'd been picking cockles. Mm -hmm. And some of the others on board were making fun of him because they stank up the whole cabin. So I guess people were still doing it as of that time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, 
Yeah, and they have a dog, Tatters, which is the greatest name of any dog, I think. It's a great <laughs> name. So he's he calls him like a, a rag of wolf's tongue. So he's kind of trying to like level up the dog's menace, maybe, because, mm-hmm. you know, Stephen doesn't like dogs. Mm-hmm. And he's sniffing around the corpse of one. So it's like a dog sniffing a dead dog's body on the beach. Again, getting back to the pre, we've had the two midwives as well. He sees or yes. imagines which might have like a dead baby in their bag. So again, dead everywhere on this beach. Um, and I, I hate the fact that they give a bootless kick to poor old Tatters because yeah. all he does is he's being nice to them and he's a loyal dog. Mm. Um, let's see. There's some words in there that I haven't a clue about. Um, Any that stand out? Oh, a pard. I think that was like, is a pard like an antique word for a a wolf or a panther or something like that? Yeah, it's along those lines. Uh, Couldn't tell you what a spouse breach is. Um, Yeah. So no, more more of that makes sense than not. Like, you know, I think some of that, if if a person read that cold, some of them might go, God, don't know what that is. But you get the gist. It's if if you wanted to give somebody a, a part of the book to read and never read it before, I think they'd have a fighting chance mm-hmm. to get the gist of it. I like too that at the beginning he says, "I see your skirt." He's pinned up, I bet. Like Jesus, he was oversexed. I think about twenty three, twenty two. Yeah, he's twenty two. Yeah. Morose delectation. Dirty fecker. All right, shall we get into it? Yep. Yeah. So before we do, as you mentioned, Joyce. And by extension, Stephen was not a dog person. He was attacked by a dog as a young boy. I believe he had like stitches or surgery associated with that and carried with him a lifelong fear of dogs. When he was speaking to his friend Frank Budgeon about this, he said to Budgeon, this certainly wasn't written by a dog lover. Although I think that Tatters is pretty lovable in his own way. Let's get into it. A man and a woman. I see her skirties, pinned up, I bet. Their dog ambled about a bank of dwindling sand, trotting, sniffing on all sides, looking for something lost in a past life. Suddenly he made off like a bounding hare, ears flung back, chasing the shadow of a low, skimming gull. The man's shrieked whistle struck his limp ears. So, do you remember what Stephen was not so much doing, but thinking? thinking right before this. Oh, I'm not sure. He was trapped in what I will call a despair spiral, Mm -hmm. thinking about how Buck Mulligan is not actually a fake or a pretender. He actually saved men from drowning, and Stephen couldn't do that, and how he couldn't save his mother, he couldn't save his sister. And I think... What is happening is he's sitting on this, what he calls a mole of boulders, these these rocks near the beach, and he's just thinking like, oh, I'm such a piece of garbage. I'm such a piece of garbage. And he kind of notices some movement. He's, oh, a man and a woman. And he determines it's a woman because he can see her skirts pinned up. And they're pinned up because they're going to wander into the mm. surf yeah. looking for cockles. Which What's a cockle? That's uh, a thing that grows in the water in a shell and it tastes disgusting probably. I wouldn't know because I've never had one. Yeah, they're a, a, a bivalve creature. So yeah. they have kind of two shells, you know, like a, a clam yeah. type shape. Yeah. But they're they're really small. They're about this. Yeah. You well, never. People listening can't see, but they're about this big. They're you'll never, small. You'll never get one into me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's, Stephen has kind of been pulled out of his, his shame spiral or despair spiral, whatever you want to call it. 
because he's distracted by a man, a woman, and their dog, who we learn much further below that the dog's name is Tatters, so I think we can just refer to the dog as Tatters. So, one of the major themes of Proteus is reincarnation and the constant change in procession of forms, because Proteus was a sea god in the Odyssey and also a shapeshifter. So, Protean with a small p means something that changes consistently or constantly. So, what we see consistent through our selected passage today are the Protean forms of a dog. And Joyce told Frank Budgen again that dogs are the most Protean of animals and that they are natural mummers. So he, I don't, in, in the, the, the book that I'm referencing here, which is called The Making of Ulysses, and is a, a great little guide that's based on first-person, first-hand conversation between Budgeon and Joyce. He doesn't, I, I wish that he had asked Joyce what the hell this means, but this is just Joyce's personal feeling, so we just want to keep that tucked in the, the back of our mind as we read through Can this. Can we describe what a mummer is? What is a mummer? Uh, I, I, you know, from Game of Thrones, when every oh. time George, one of George Martin's favorite phrases, mm-hmm. it's a mummer's farce, yeah. which I guess is like a, a traveling circus or a, um, theatrical actors yeah, or comedic it, clowns, that kind of thing. Yeah, like an, an actor or a, a, a mimic of some mm-hmm. sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah a, a performer. Um, so we see most of this first little bit here is pretty self-explanatory. So we consider the protean forms of a dog. We want to take this literally as we're reading this because in Proteus, nothing is, is ever quite real. So we see Tatters described as he made off like a bounding hare. So here he's kind of taking on the form of a hare. As we continue on through the sequence, you'll notice Tatters passes through maybe a half a dozen different forms or lives as he makes his protean transformations or reincarnations. All right, on to the next. He turned, bounded back, came nearer, trotted untwinkling shanks, on a field tenea buck, trippant, proper, unattired. Continuing on with that reincarnation theme, here Tatters becomes a... A buck. Yes. Yeah, on a field tenea buck, trippant, proper, unattired. I wasn't sure when we were reading that. It sounded heraldic, but I wasn't sure. Well, it is heraldic. Okay. I'm guessing you can see my note here. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this this sentence is what we're going to mostly focus on here because I think whether you are a first-time reader or a tenth-time reader, this sentence, on a field to nay a buck, trippant, proper, unattired, is absolutely inscrutable. I mean, you reading it, so this is your first time reading it today. Mm-hmm. Does it mean anything to you? Does it conjure uh, like a picture? Yeah. Uh, the only th- the only heraldic thing I could remember would be like a lion rampant, mm, which is a yeah. lion on its back, two legs with its arm, mm-hmm. two feet. It's, you know, the language is specific. So if yes. you hear the description, you can conjure mm-hmm. a specific animal in a specific pose. Mm-hmm. But this is this, is this gobbledygook? Is it just gibberish? Or? No, it's 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 heraldic language. So rather than rampant, we have trippant. Mm. And yeah, heraldic. So heraldry. How would, what does heraldry mean? Oh yeah, it's like feudal shields and yeah. uh, coats of arms yeah. of like. Land robbers who set themselves <laughs> up as royals. Yeah. yeah, so you're mentioning Game of Thrones. Heraldry is pretty big in Game of Thrones. Yep. I guess 
George Martin was really into that or is really into that. Mm -hmm. So we've got some here. Uh, so on a field, so in heraldry, the field is, is the background of whatever yeah. your heraldic symbol is. So on a field today, and because it's using medieval English, it sometimes takes the word order of French, which was very influential over Middle English because of the Normans. So t that word that looks like tenny is pronounced tenay. Mm -hmm. And it refers to a color that could be orange, but it's similar, I think, etymologically to tawny. So we'll stick with tawny. Tawny is kind of a, a tan. Mm -hmm. or like I always think of a, a tawny lion. So it's like a lion color. So if we stick with tawny in mind, we can imagine that this is the sand on the beach. On a field tenay. So on a, a, a tawny field. That's your sand. Trippant. On a field tenay a buck. So on a tawny field a buck. Trippant, this is an adjective, and it describes walking. Hmm. So, like, like you said, rampant is like it's it's running. This is more like it's walking. So, a buck trippant. So this so far we have a buck walking on an orange or tawny field. Proper means this is natural color, so it's not like a green deer or some other symbolic color. He's a natural color of a dog. And unattired is the most interesting here, I think, because it means lacking antlers. So typically a buck or a male deer, when it's shown in heraldry, will be described as attired, which means it has large antlers. Mm -hmm. And a stag without antlers actually symbolizes impotence. So it's not something you'd really see in a heraldic image. Mm -hmm. But however, like all dogs, Tatters is naturally unattired, meaning he doesn't have antlers. Due to being a dog. Hmm. Even a um, protean reincarnating dog. <laughs> he doesn't have antlers. So the image we get there then, on a field, tenay a buck, trippet, proper, unattired, means on an orange or tawny field, uh, there is a, a buck who is walking, naturally colored, and without antlers. So why do we have... There's no other heraldic imagery before or after this. Mm -hmm. It's just this one. So why why do you think Joyce would stick this in? I mean, it's not there just because or by accident, you know. Mm. I have no idea. That's perfect. <laughs> That's fair and typical. <laughs> Stephen is observing this dog, and we know he's very fearful of dogs. And... We need to consider the dog as a protean creature, and Stephen is a very unprotean creature. He's sort of stuck right now. Mm -hmm. He's stuck mentally, he's, and he's kind of stuck physically as well. He described himself previously, Stephen did, as neither master nor slave because he desires to be a free agent. He doesn't want to be a, a slave and be unfree, but I, I think he doesn't want to master or control others as well. Either. He just wants to be a free agent. But he is now confronted with this dog, Tatters, who is a pure expression of freedom. Because Tatters is sort of, you know, shifting through all these different forms. A, a hare, a buck, a dog, who knows what he is. And uh, Stephen finds this expression of freedom completely overwhelming. In part because I think the dog, as we'll see, really comes to symbolize what Stephen wants to be. Because the dog is the ward of the two cockle pickers, but he does not care. 
even when they're physically abusive, he doesn't really care. Mm -hmm. Because of this, Tatters is his own master. He is the master of his domain in a way that Stephen isn't. Because Stephen is also abused, verbally abused. I, I don't know that Buck Mulligan's given him a, a good swift kick, mm -hmm. but he has emotionally given him a good swift kick. And he's not able to let it bounce off in the way that Tatters is. And so Stephen realizes how far he is, I think unconsciously, from being able to frolic with reckless abandon along the seashore and not care what anyone thinks. And that's what Stephen wants to become creatively. I don't think he cares about la-dee-da on the seashore, mm -hmm. but he, uh, he wants to be totally free as an artist. Mm. But this is overwhelming. He's not ready to take it in. So he sort of crams this dog's organic improvised motion into a into this formalized language of heraldry, which allows Stephen to make order from the chaos because the chaos is alarming. Stephen longs for freedom, but he's just not ready for it, I think, uh, spiritually or psychologically. You've, we've talked a lot about how he's a terrible atheist. Yeah. He wants freedom from a sort of spiritual oppression, mm -hmm. but he, he's not really ready to actually act that out in his real life. Mm. It's, it's sort of, it seems like it's only words. Yeah. For one to become free, this means embracing and kind of rolling with the protean nature of reality, a reality in which things are always changing and moving and sometimes hard to grasp. But Stephen is uncomfortable with change because a lot of the change in his life recently has been really bad and really hard you know, including the death of a parent. So he himself is kind of stiff, introverted, and incredibly self-conscious. So not necessarily qualities that we associate with a, a free spirit. Mm -hmm. And the other sort of chaos bringer in Stephen's life, much more dominantly than Tatters, is of course... Buck Mulligan. That's right. And Buck Mulligan upends Stephen's tranquility of every turn. So when that chaos enters his life, it's always bad. <laughs> it's often cruel or just obnoxious or rude so the dog is offering him an alternate vision of of this sort of chaos or total freedom but it's it's a non-judgmental chaos it's it's distant it's indifferent and it shows that you could be a free spirit like mulligan who does whatever he pleases at all times no matter how it affects even those closest to him and this offers maybe a more positive view of freedom and what a free person is like, mm. if we consider the dog to be a person. What do you think? Also, by describing the dog as, as you'd see him on a shield, mm -hmm. does he book a shield image, I guess? Mm -hmm. Like something that would protect mm. you or ward off mm -hmm. the world. Mm. Yeah. Also, delineates your territory. Mm -hmm. But yeah, very mm -hmm. feudal, it's medieval. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it shows us Stephen is really stuck still in that, mm. you know, old-fashioned mindset. Mm. You know, because if Catholicism is this sort of overhanging thing that's always bearing down on him, I mean, the Middle Ages and Catholicism are linked, mm -hmm. I'd say. Sort of medieval worldview, he's, he might still have a little bit right. unconsciously, even if he, he, he wants to be the bohemian. Mm. Let's move on. At the lace fringe of the tide, he halted with stiff four hooves seaward pointed ears his snout lifted barked at the wave noise herds of sea morse they serpented towards his feet curling unfurling many crests every ninth breaking plashing from far from farther out waves and waves 
let's talk reincarnation first. So the dog here is still a buck because he has his hooves. And he is running up to the tide and sort of, you know, playing in the water. But the waves here also take on a, a protean quality. As they become serpents, they serpent. They serpented towards his feet, mm -hmm. right? So imagining the waves as sort of snakes coming towards the dog. And also sea morse. So this is probably one of those words that you've never heard before, mm. I think would be fair. Yep. What is a sea morse without looking at the notes? I have no idea. I've never heard it. <laughs> it makes you want to think of seahorse, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. But sea morse is an archaic term for a walrus. Mm. The the sound of the waves as well takes on this this sort of protean quality. So uh, the roar of the surf is described as herds of sea morse. So think of uh, a, a big, you know, herd of bellowing walruses. Uh, that's how loud those those waves are. So there's a bit of a Homeric connection to this. I think we talked about the uh, parallel episode in the Odyssey a very long time ago. Do you remember anything about it? No. All right, uh, Menelaus, one of the heroes of the Trojan War, comrade of Odysseus's, also ended up stuck on an island on his way home after the Trojan War ended, and he gets stuck on the island of Proteus the sea god, and to escape, he must sort of pin down the sea god Proteus, who sleeps every day at mm. noon with his herd of, of seals, and... Menelaus is told by Proteus's daughter, you have to hold on to him even as he changes into like fire and water and lions and all these scary things. I think this might also be a little bit of a nod to that. Although it does, I'd say, beg the question, well, okay, if Joyce wanted to call them seals, why not just call them seals? Because Proteus had seals, not sea morse. You know, and it wouldn't make sense for a, a big horde of blubbery walruses to be sleeping on Proteus's Mediterranean island. Mm -hmm. Oh, good question, Kelly. Well, that is because Tatters is unafraid to look into the face of the gods and speak to those very gods himself. So let's look at Seamorse again. Seamorse is awfully close to Seahorse, mm -hmm. as we said. And you may recall earlier in Proteus that Stephen likened the waves to white-maned seahorses champing bright when bridled the steeds of Mananon. Do you remember who Mananon is? Oh, God. Mananon. I know we covered that. I can't... We only got him how many weeks it was, but yeah. I, oh, it's probably last year. Yeah. <laughs> so Mananon MacClear is a sea god from the Irish or Celtic pantheon, and he drove a seaborne chariot that was pu pulled by a horse called Enbar of the Flowing Mane. Sometimes, uh, sometimes especially foamy waves are called the seahorses of Mananon. I don't know that that's a common expression. Do you know any Irish folks who say that? <laughs> I've never heard it. Yeah. But then again, I don't live in Donegal or Mayo. So right. So maybe out there they, mm -hmm. you might hear Yeah, I, I think it's, it is probably also an archaic expression. But mm -hmm. that previous line about the steeds of Mananon, the white mane seahorses... It does seem like a pretty direct connection to that. And Joyce was interested in these sorts of folk sayings and folklore and things like that. This this gives us a great connection here because not only are both Proteus and Mananon sea gods, but they are also both shapeshifters. So Mananon also has a small p protean quality to him. Mm -hmm. And we mentioned the ninth wave here. So another key 
here that shows that we're not just dealing with Proteus, but this sort of homegrown sea god, this Irish sea god, is the mention of the ninth wave. It's, it's just, just tossed right in there, mm. in with the, you know, all of Tatters kind of playing in the waves. So in Irish mythology, the ninth wave out from land is seen as a boundary between our world and the other world where the gods live. And Mananon, in some aspects of myth, He's the guardian of that boundary, so kind of similar to Charon in Greek mythology, who is kind of a you know threshold guardian mm -hmm. between our world and the underworld. Mananon is is also a, a threshold guardian in that way, and I always found this ninth wave concept very interesting because it's a, a moving boundary. Like which wave is the ninth wave? Mm -hmm. Because new waves are always being formed, right. and the, as those waves come in the sea, it's only briefly the ninth wave mm -hmm. until very quickly it's not so it's it's so shifty and and protean like everything else in this so it's it's a really great little bit of imagery there tatters though is kind of on the the seashore splashing around his, his snout lifted barked at the wave noise herds of sea morse so the sea morse are like the seahorses they are we can link them now to the sea god so tatters is standing at the coast between our physical world and the realm of the gods, barking loudly because he speaks directly to the gods. But Stephen later will cower at the sound of thunder in the uh, episode Oxen of the Sun uh, because it, despite his claimed atheism, he is still very few, uh, fearful of the rebuke of an angry god. So this dog Tatters is so much more courageous and free He's not even frightened or, you know, shy or whatever you want to say of, of the gods themselves. He's, he's totally free of all these things that oppress Stephen. And Stephen must learn to be this bold if he is to claim his freedom and birthright as an artist. Yeah, makes sense. Okay. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's keep going then. One more thing then. Oh, yeah. Dog is God spelled backwards. <laughs> Thanks, Columbo. One other question. <laughs> Just one more thing. That's a little joke for the baby boomers out there. Yeah, okay. Um, are, are we pandering to baby boomers? No, we're not. That's you you be paranoid. Millennials now. love Columbo, by the way. Columbo is having a real moment right now because there's a lot of it and they're very easy to watch oh. and everyone's at home. Well, then I recommend if there's any millennials out there that they should watch the uh, uh, Vim Vendor's Wings of Desire. Oh, because Peter Falk's Peter in Falk is in as Peter Falk. And everywhere he goes, all the little German kids are going, Columbo, Columbo. <laughs> no, they're not. They are. Oh, no. They do, because he's playing himself. That's what he's famous really? for. Really? I had no idea. Okay. No. I've only seen the Nicolas Cage no, American remake. Tripe. Uh, Peter Falk also in the movie, 2007 movie Next with Nicolas Cage, which I don't re recommend watching. Kelly is a Nicolas Cage expert. Garbage. Uh, that might not be All right. widely known out there. Right? Uh, City of Angels, also kind of dumb. Oh, God. All right. Next, cockle pickers. They waded a little way in the water and, stooping, soused their bags and, lifting them again, waded out. The dog yelped, running to them, reared up and pawed them, dropping on all fours, again reared up at them with mute, bearish fawning. Unheeded, he kept by them as they came towards the drier sand, a rag of wolf's tongue red panting from his jaws. His speckled body ambled ahead of them and then loped off at a calf's gallop. So, more protean dog forms. What, what did you catch? 
I'm still thinking about Colombo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, the, the, what well, again, when I read that, the Wolfstone red panting mm -hmm. when it came out. Like, he really is terrified of that dog. Um, speckled body. I don't think I drew Tatters as speckled. Maybe I should have put spots on him. Yeah, so he's described as, as bearish, uh, mute, bearish fawning. He's described as wolf-like, uh, more lupine, I guess, a, yeah. a rag of wolf's tongue, and described as, as speckled. Uh, and then, yeah, he then loped off at a calf's gallop. So he has mm. the, the movements of a, a calf as well. Right. You know, we can, we can imagine his movements through all these different evocations of animals, mm -hmm. but because this is also our most esoteric episode of Ulysses, we can imagine that there's some bit of literal truth to them as well, yeah. and that he's processing through these many forms. And it's reminiscent again then of, of the sea god Proteus cycling through his various forms, uh, trying to shake off Menelaus. Right. That's about all I have to say. I mean, it's just a, a dog having fun on a beach. What's not to like? Mm. Next bit. The carcass lay on his path. He stopped, sniffed, stalked round it. Brother, nosing closer, went round it, sniffing rapidly like a dog all over the dead dog's bedraggled fell. Dog skull, dog sniff, eyes on the ground, moves to one great goal. Ah, poor dog's body. Here lies poor dog's body's body. What do you think about this? Any, any of that... Shake anything loose in your memory? My memory? Yeah, the other stuff we've talked about. I'm just seeing the poor dead dog on the beach. Isn't that enough? You're a very empathetic person. Here. Yeah, I don't like it. But that that gives you and, and Stephen something in, in common. Mm. So yeah, there's a, a little bit here. Moves toward moves to one great goal. Does that loosen anything up? Oh yeah, um, the um, Aristotelian teleology, we're moving to the manifestation of God in the world. Yeah, like who said that? Um, was it Mr. Deasy? That was Mr. Deasy. Mm. All history moves to one great goal. But he's sort of paraphrasing Aristotle. Mm. I don't want to tread on any Aristotelian philosophers' mm -hmm. toes out there. I hope I'm overspeaking. But I think the Aristotelian worldview is teleological. Everything has a purpose. It's the final cause, right? Mm -hmm. There's four causes in the Aristotle's yes. teaching. Yes. And the fourth one, which has been chopped off by modern science, it's verboten. To modern science is seen as religion is what's it for and you're not allowed to ask it or you're a mad person and so, mr deasy says that it is the manifestation of god right and what is what do you think then is steve stephen is implying here dog skull dog sniff eyes on the ground moves to one great goal and that one great goal for all of us is sniffing a dead dog on death. <laughs> oh yes yes death because yeah. Steven's super emo. I think yeah. I described him on the blog yeah. as being one Joy Division album away from being properly emo. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And mm -hmm. he's also, okay, he's also, he's grieving. He's, you know, in a really rough state psychologically right now. So mm -hmm. we won't be too mean. Just a little, little bit of bullying. Mm -hmm. And also, Dog's Body is what, uh, back in Telemachus, Buck Mulligan referred to Steven as Dog's Body. And a, a dog's body. What is a, a dog's body? Oh, somebody who does like awful work for their yeah. master. It's like yeah. a low, a low level servant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When when it's written out here, dog's body, all is one work. Yeah, it's it's a sort of menial, mm -hmm. baldric like servant. So the dog's body becomes Stephen's body or dog's body in his head. Here lies 
poor dog's body's body. So Stephen sees his own mortality in this dead dog. We know he's already really been um, ruminating and focusing on the just the thought of a man who drowned off Dublin Bay nine days ago. Just so here he's actually being confronted with a corpse, though not a human corpse. And er earlier two episodes back, he's just been given the notion that there might be a corpse somewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's enough to really trigger a strong emotional response in him. But Tatters, who is his great muse and role model inspiration here, is totally nonplussed by the symbol of his own mortality lying on the beach. Mm -hmm. So Stephen, as we said, even in this drowned dog's body, poor dog, Stephen looks at him and thinks, oh God, I'm going to be dead <sighs> someday. Here lies poor dog's body's dog's body. It's going to be my body. Tatters goes up and he sniffs it. He, he gets physically close. He lets his his uh, sense of smell interact with it, it not just his, his eyes, a uh, sense of sight, but he seeks to understand and only to understand just through his physical senses the nature of this discovery. He just wants to take it in as it is without laying any of his baggage over it. I would argue karmic ba baggage because this little bit here really reminds me of the Zen koan about the Buddha nature of a dog. Do you know... Anything about that? No. All right. I haven't heard this one. When asked if his dog possessed a Buddha nature, Zen master Zhao Zhou replied uh, with a, well, it's written in Chinese and it's a character that means non-existence. In Korean and Japanese it's pronounced Mu, so I'm going to say he replied Mu. And the Buddha nature is the uh, potential that exists within all living things to become an enlightened being, to become a Buddha. And so the question here is, does, does a dog possess that? Because a dog is a lowly creature. You know, a human is a very lofty creature. Mm -hmm. So we, we, I think... Allegedly. Allegedly. So, you know, it's, it's taken for granted that humans have a Buddha nature. But what about a lowly creature like a dog? And so the Zen master says, mu, which just means non-exist, non non-existence. So it, what it means is an answer cannot be given. The answer is yes and no. And Tatters offers up no answers about the nature of life and death or any other duality. And this, this freedom from that duality, that bifurcation, is what leads to awakening or enlightenment. Mm. I've just been reading about the life of a, a great Korean Zen uh, master uh, and, you know, believed to be a awakened um, master named Wonho. And it's believed that he he achieved his moment of enlightenment by um, realizing the gourd he had been drinking out of during the night was a, a human skull because <laughs> uh, he had stopped to rest along his path in what he thought was a cave. And during the night, he drank water from a gourd mm -hmm. and it was so delicious. And then in the morning, he realized it was a skull and he was actually in a crypt. Mm -hmm. And that was when he achieved his enlightenment mm -hmm. because... Yeah, it's, it's all just in your mind, man. Like, it's all one. It's all one. <laughs> My favorite Zen master quote is the last word. I, f I forget the name of the Zen master, but yeah. his last words were, I don't want to die. Oh, okay. And I, I love mm -hmm. the honesty of it. There was none of this, you know, like, mm -hmm. I want to go out with some really pithy thing. It's like, I don't want to die. It's the Oscar Wilde I like kind being of... me. Worked really hard at this. Mm-hmm. So anyway, to turn back to this duality, though, life and death, yes and no, up and down, uh, 
being too stuck and bothered and worried about this kind of binary worldview as Stephen is. Because for Stephen, it's me versus Ireland, me mm -hmm. versus Mulligan, me versus this dog. Uh, he's so trapped in this dualistic thinking that, you know, these boundaries will always exist between Stephen and everything. So if it's artistic enlightenment that he seeks, he needs to be able to transcend his dualistic thinking. And we can see in Tatters that to Tatters, it just is. Mm -hmm. It's just this thing. It is. He, he seeks only to understand it, not to put his own judgment on it. And so I think Tatters is a Zen master. Well, he lives in the moment, man. I knew a Buddhist monk in Korea who had a, a little dog named Hetal. Mm -hmm. And Hetal, I think, means enlightenment in oh. Korean. <laughs> and there was something about his face where I was like, yeah, I, I can see the Buddha nature in this dog. <laughs> oh, he's really cute. And when I would leave the temple, he would hold the dog up and bounce his little paw and say, bye-bye, bye-bye. <laughs> it's this tiny little white dog. Oh, Hetal was great. Okay, <laughs> enough dog stories for now. Tatters, out of that, you mongrel. So this is his human saying, get out of that filthy corpse. So his, the, his owners are maybe less enlightened than himself. The cry brought him skulking back to his master, and a blunt, bootless kick sent him unscathed across a spit of sand, crouched in flight. He slunk back in a curve. Doesn't see me. Yeah, I agree. This, this kind of is, is a bummer that he kicks the dog. Mm. Uh, doesn't see me. That, so that's Stephen thinking then. Oh, the, like the dog doesn't see me. Along by the edge of the mole, he lolloped, dawdled, smelt a rock, and from under a cocked hind leg, pissed against it. He trotted forward and, lifting again his hind leg, pissed quick, short, at an unsmelt rock. The simple pleasures of the poor. Which you can picture that pretty easily if you've ever taken a dog for a walk. Mm -hmm. It's kind of how they do. And that last line I find very ironic because Stephen is watching him take these simple pleasures. And Stephen is also quite poor, as we know. I don't think that Stephen really feels many simple pleasures. He's so tortured. So this is Tatters engaging in an act of creation and creativity. So do you remember back in Telemachus when we talked about Mother Grogan and her teapot? Do you remember that? Yeah. What does Mother Grogan do in her teapot? Oh, the teapot. Yeah. She's, uh, she's not Gummy Granny. No, gum, Gummy Granny is a, a monstrous hallucination oh, of the Grogan. milk woman. I don't remember Mother Grogan, actually. Mother Grogan uh, was this little kind of rude rhyme that Mulligan recites oh, at breakfast. yeah. About how she confuses her teapot for a chamber pot. Mm. But during that episode, and that is, I think, episode six called Tea for the Towerman, if you want to go find it. Uh, we learn that urination is symbolic of creation and creativity mm -hmm. because you're you're producing something or creating something from your own body. Right. So... And it's a yellow. Is that still the symbolic color of this chapter or are we into a different one now? A yellow was uh, the correspondent color of Telemachus in which mm -hmm. that first happened. The mm -hmm. symbolic color, correspondent color of this is green, gotcha. which is also symbolic of creation. Mm -hmm. If your urine is green, you should see a doctor immediately. Uh, so this to me though is, is further proof that this, this dog is a, is a proper Zen master and an artist. Mm -hmm. You know, again, he, uh, engages in the act of creation without any judgment or, you know, um, hindrance the way Stephen might. He, he doesn't have any shame. He just, he just acts spontaneously. Mm -hmm. 
I referred to Tatters as Stephen's muse. I, I feel that this act of urination is quite inspirational to Stephen, who before this episode is out will also pee against a rock. Hmm. So after the departure of Tatters, Stephen commits multiple creative acts. Uh, he begins writing his poem. He produces some dried snot from his nose and wipes it on a rock. And he, too, urinates against another rock. I really think that Tatters is a, a creative uh, muse and inspiration for Stephen. Yeah, sounds like mm -hmm. it. And so these are all um, symbolic acts of, of creation. Our last little section here. His hind paws then scattered the sand. Then his forepaws dabbled and delved, something he buried there, his grandmother. He rooted in the sand, dabbling, delving, and stopped to listen to the air, scraped up the sand again with a fury of his claws, soon ceasing, a pard, a panther got in spouse breach, vulturing the dead. Does this rattle anything in your memory? Oh, it's not ringing a bell. Real quick, let's touch on our, our reincarnation theme for the last time. What forms does Tatters take here? Well, it calls him a pard, mm -hmm. whatever that is. I remember I flagged that earlier because that's yeah. some sort of antique word. We're about to get into that. Yeah, a panther, and that's the legal Martella Tower, of course. Oh, good, good catch, good catch. Uh, and then spouse breach, I have no idea what that right. word is. Vulture, of course, the obvious. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we yeah. have one, two, three, maybe four mm -hmm. things. I would say he's also a fox here, a fox burying his grandmother, so, which was the title of a previous episode. Uh, okay. Does that help at all? Yes. Tell, tell us what that jogs in your memory. Was it the riddle? That's yes, right. when yes, Stephen yes. Stephen was doing the yeah. riddle to the students mm -hmm. and he said, you know, and there was like a, the answer was supposed to be a grandmother. It was supposed to be a mother. A mother and he calls it grandmother. Mm -hmm. A fox bearing his, his uh, no, he says mother instead of grandmother. Mm -hmm. The original answer was a fox bearing his grandmother under a, a holly bush. Right. But Stephen says it's a fox bearing his mother under a holly bush. Right. So he recalls the riddle again, but here he gets it right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we took that as a Freudian slip that mm -hmm. he yeah. was going through some guilt about his mother's mm -hmm. death. I think I got that right. Mm. Whichever one he says in Nestor, you guys, is the wrong one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I yeah. I, I'm, I'm doubting so myself. Basically it was like an Edward Lear type nonsense riddle, but it's a very old one. Mm -hmm. it? It's one that Frank Delaney in his podcast Rejo Rejoice said he remembered. Not hearing that one specifically, but hearing similar ones when he was a boy in Tipperary. Mm -hmm. And then also came from this book of folk riddles and sayings and things by P.W. Joyce, no relation. Mm -hmm. So His final form here then really is a fox. Uh, and he recalls the fox in Stephen's riddle, which is a creature that's digging. And so Stephen is recalling that riddle. And I, I see this as being symbolic of Tatters, ever the enlightened being, being able to bury his demons, um, grandmother evoking mother, which Stephen is totally unable to do. All of his demons are jumping up and down on his head, screaming at him. Uh, and Tatters just goes ahead and, and digs in the sand. And we, at the very top of this too, he's described as searching for something he lost in a past life. And he moves on very quickly. Again, he's, he's not, he, he really does practice non-attachment hmm. uh, like a good Buddhist. So, all right, the pard and the panther. So let's talk about pards. A pard is sort of a mythical creature that seems to originate with the Romans, not really knowing what a leopard was or not really understanding what leopards were. So a leopard is believed to be the sinful outcome 
of relations between a lioness, a female lion, and the mythical pard, which was famous for being a lustful, violent creature, similar to a panther. So you get it, Leo, mm -hmm. the lion, and then pard becomes leopard or leopard, as a normal person would say it. So, yeah, it was just this weird belief that, you know, dates back to the Romans, like I said, that, you know, a, a leopard was this this creature that was really got in, in spouse, spouse breach, which means uh, like a violation of a marriage, uh, adultery, that I guess the, the lioness is uh, married to a, a male lion, mm -hmm. and uh, the pard comes in then and defiles her in some way, and then they have this uh, hybrid creature, which is the leopard. This belief in pards kind of got carry, carried along through the centuries, uh, the medievals adopted this creature into their bestiaries. Um, there's a image from a Scottish bestiary of a pard in the show notes if you'd like to see it. It's it's kind of one of those things where, you know, these medieval scholars said, well, the, the Romans described this creature, so we'll put it in our book. And then the next guy puts it in his book. And it, it kept getting repeated. And you can find it in uh, books that feature descriptions of African wildlife in, into the 1700s. Hmm. There is no pard. There's a panther. There's a leopard. There's a lion. But there's no pard. This, like, horrible, lustful, immoral, violent creature. Stephen here is describing the pard as a, a panther got in spouse breach. So it's a sort of def defiled, malignant panther because it was uh, formed in an uh, adulterous affair between a lion and a pard. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that would be a leopard rather than a panther, but I, I don't care. Neither does Stephen. So, uh, we had an episode a few back that was called Panther Sahib and Pointer, and as you, call, you called out very rightly, uh, panther was something that came up in Telemachus. What What is the context of the panther? The pan within, in the Martella Tower, it's where uh, Haynes has the nightmare mm -hmm. of the panther mm -hmm. and uh, shoots his gun at it, allegedly. Yeah, well, I don't think the gun made it into Ulysses. Oh, really? Yeah, he, it didn't have? No. Okay. In real life. Yeah. So that, that's some of the, the controversy there. We, we discussed that in our, yeah. our episode about the Martello Tower called mm. the James Joyce Tower Museum, which is a great episode you listen to. So, back to Panther Sahib and Pointer, because that is an image that occurs in Proteus. So, um, well, I guess rather than the fox, the final Protean form of a, the servile dog, which the Pointer here, remember, was Mulligan, mm -hmm. and by extension, the Irish elite. The dog's final form is the panther, symbolized by Haynes, and by extension, the English colonialists. Not only do the Irish middle and upper classes kind of kiss the Englishmen's butts, people like Haynes. Uh, but they are also trying to transform into these English pards, like Mr. Deasy. So this isn't the first time that this sort of adulterous imagery has been used to frame the relationship between the Irish and the English. Way back in Telemachus, that milk woman that we mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, she is described by Stephen as a lowly form of an immortal serving her conqueror, a.k.a. Haynes, and her gay betrayer, a.k.a. Mulligan, their common cook queen, which, if you want a great vocab word, cook queen is the female version of a cuckold. 
Let's get that going as an internet slur. We'll probably do it. Cuck queen? Mm. Um, I guess. Same yeah. spelling too, Q-U-E-N. But yeah, so the this milk woman who she's the lowly form of an immortal, kind of taking this Celtic revival imagery of Ireland as this, you know, play place of the the gods and mm -hmm. and whatnot. That so as an Irish woman, a symbol of Ireland, she's descended from these, you know, great immortal beings. Mm. And here she is as a humble servant to her colonialists and his uh you know, lick spittle. So she's she's uh being cuck queened by Mulligan and the Irish upper classes. Right. Yeah, because they're hot for the English, I guess, and Deezies and all those sorts of people. Yeah. Yeah. They'd be called West Brits today. Yes, yeah. Still, that, that's where we We've discussed that term before yes. as well, too. Yeah. So this all turns then into um, this this imagery then of, I, I you know, the Irish class system. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, Stephen's sort of disgust for it, I would say. And uh, from here, we will next time go into a paragraph that is completely unrelated from this and everything around it. Because <laughs> Ulysses is great. All right, well, give us some closing thoughts, Dermot. What's, what's on your mind? So that this event described here would have taken in real time if you were to watch it, maybe 10 seconds? Uh, 30 tops. Yeah, maximum. Mm -hmm. From that, we can spin out. Maybe a couple of minutes. Like, yeah. the dog's running around for a while. He's having a good yeah. old time. Yeah. Just wants his owners to love him, but they're busy collecting cockles. And yeah. Have no time for him. Yeah. yeah, so, I, I, you know what? I'm going to just go off on one of my hobby horses, mm -hmm. and that's about the medievals. Anyone who thinks that they were stupid to have these oh, weird... weird the pards? Yeah, the pards and the... the uh, what are they? The guys with the big feet over their heads. Oh, the blemmies? The blemmies, Yeah. Uh, they had like these umbrella feet that they would have over yeah. their heads. And a lot of people look at them and go, God, those people in the medieval period were stupid. Not like the Greeks and the Romans. Well, that's where they got it from. They got all that stuff from Pliny and from the Roman encyclopedists, mm -hmm. like Martellus Capian, I think was one of them. And they, they got these books from the ancient classics and they went, oh, well, these guys must have known more than we do. And so hence you got all these crazy medieval, you know, illustrations of these. Oh, yeah, the guys would know... Uh, with no heads, they have like their face and their chests. And Those are blemmies. Uh, the, that's the blemmy. The, blemmy. the, that's the big the blemmy. foot guy has a different name. Skyapods. Okay. Skyapods, yes. And um, they were all, they think some of them might be mutations of actual animals or, mm -hmm. you know, like some sort, sort of monkeys. They have their heads low down. And um, that the, the foot is like a distorted account of like people from India with the enormous parasols that they would have had in the mm. you know, classical period. And uh, so, anyway, I, I'm just going to say if anyone's, into like beating up on on some little medieval fella, cutting some slack. And beat up a Roman fella. Blame instead. the Romans. Out there, that's my that's my takeaway. All right, all right. Well, if you have any thoughts about that, feel free to reach out to us on social media or by email. All those details will be in the outro. And until next time, have a great two weeks. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. 
Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's blooms, A-N-D, barnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.